Having an extension built on your house can be a frustrating business. Among other things, some builders don't exactly work to schedule. I say some builders, I know this is not true of all, but my neighbours across the road are currently having an extension built. This is uh, what you see on the screen here. It's not actually a photo of their extension, I should point out. I was all set to give you one. Um, but since we've been living in our street less than a year, my wife suggested that it might not be good for community relations for me to be seen standing in the middle of the road taking photos of our neighbors' houses. I'm very go- uh, glad God gave my wife more sense than me. But in any case, uh, the uh, extension in the picture does have something in common with the extension across the road, namely... There are no builders to be seen anywhere. The extension was supposed to be completed in February of this year, but the foundations have barely been laid by March. And on the rare occasions when we saw any builders anywhere near the house, they were usually sat in a van uh, reading the newspaper and drinking tea. If you speak to me after the service, I'll tell you the name printed on the side of the van. (laughs) So my wife and I were asking this question. When do these builders work? When exactly do they work? And maybe uh, you've asked questions like that as you've sat in your car at one of the many temporary traffic lights around Edinburgh at the moment. When do these workmen work, you ask? Perhaps some of us have asked a similar question about Jesus, although, of course, we would want to put it more reverently. We know that Jesus has the power of God because he is God. We know that he can do whatever he chooses, And yet there are many things that he apparently chooses not to do. So we ask, when does Jesus work? When should we expect Jesus to be at work in our lives and in the lives of others? What should we be looking for? Well, I believe that the two stories in Luke's Gospel we're going to read in just a moment give us some answers to these very questions. And so I've given tonight's message the title, When Jesus Works works, when Jesus works. Please take your Bible then, and uh, I want you to have a Bible in front of you, so please take one from the pews if you need one, and turn with me to Luke chapter 7, Luke's Gospel chapter 7. Reading then from verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he had just uh, given his sermon on the plain, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. 
Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is God's word. Let's have a moment of prayer before we continue. Father, this is your word and it speaks to us of your son. Please help me to explain and apply it faithfully and help us all to hear what you have to say to us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's consider then these uh, two stories in turn to see what each one can tell us about how, or rather when, Jesus works. The first miracle, the healing of the centurion's servant, teaches us this principle, I think. Jesus works when he sees great faith. Jesus works when he sees great faith. There's no doubt that Jesus is the central character of this story, just as he is the central character in the whole of Luke's Gospel. But nevertheless, the centurion has a very important role to play here. Luke wants us, or he wants his readers, to take this centurion as an example of a positive response to Jesus. So let's look closely at this story to see what we can learn. Note, first of all, the three different opinions of this Roman centurion that are expressed in the passage. First, there's the opinion of the Jewish elders, the community leaders in Capernaum, who pleaded with Jesus. This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Well, this is high praise indeed for an employee of the occupying Roman forces. Really quite a surprising opinion. But now contrast their opinion with the centurion's own opinion of himself. What does he say? Verse 6. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. So the centurion has a much lower opinion of himself. But it's the third opinion that is the most important here, by far. What was Jesus' opinion of this man? Verse 9. I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Well, that's quite a commendation to get from the Son of God, isn't it? There were already many Jews who had put their trust in Jesus in the course of his ministry so far, but Jesus says that even among all these Jews, none of them had shown the great faith of this Gentile centurion. So what was it? What was it that Jesus saw in this man? Or to put the question in another way, What are the marks of great faith? What are the marks of great faith? What does great faith look like in ordinary people like you and me and this Roman soldier? Well, first, the centurion showed a certain fear of God. A fear of God. Some people have suggested that this man was a God-fearer. 
which was a special term that was used by the Jews to refer to a Gentile who believed in and worshipped the God of the Bible, but didn't go so far as to convert to Judaism. In the book of Acts, Luke tells the story of another Roman centurion called Cornelius, who was a God-fearer. That's what he tells us. Now, whether this centurion here was a God-fearer in the same sense, Luke doesn't say, but at the very least, he was a man who had affection for the Jewish nation, for the people of God, and who was considerate, uh, generous, and law-abiding, unlike, no doubt, many other Roman soldiers of his day. Now, fear of God isn't enough in itself for great faith, but it is certainly necessary. No one can have a God-pleasing faith who doesn't first fear God. Great faith cannot grow in a hard and godless heart any more than roses can grow in a rubbish bin. Second, this centurion had knowledge. His faith wasn't an empty faith. It was grounded in knowledge of Jesus. Living in Capernaum or nearby, he would certainly have heard about Jesus. He would have had some understanding of his claims, of his character, and what he was able to do. I think that faith has to be one of the most understood, uh, rather misunderstood, words of our age. Atheists like uh, Richard Dawkins often characterize the Christian faith as blind faith, as belief without evidence. Science, they say, that grows out of knowledge, but faith, well, that grows out of ignorance. But that sort of caricature of faith is nothing like the great faith that Jesus sees in this centurion. He doesn't call on Jesus out of a blind faith, but rather out of a faith in something he knows, that Jesus has authority, authority even over sickness. After all, what good would an ignorant faith be to him or his servant, more importantly? But I think the lesson for us is clear. If we want to be men and women of great faith, we need to know the object of our faith. We need to know Jesus and to know him well. And so, as you evaluate your own faith this evening, as I evaluate mine, let's ask ourselves, how well do we really know Jesus? How can we know him better? Third, the centurion showed selfless concern. Selfless concern. He wasn't someone who was caught up in himself. He had a genuine concern for others. He had built a synagogue for the Jews in Capernaum, even though he had no obligation to do so. And it probably cost him personally to do that, both in terms of money and reputation. But what we see most of all is that he cared deeply for his servant. Many Romans treated their servants as mere commodities to be replaced when they were no longer useful. But not this centurion. He cared enough to plead with Jesus to come out and heal his servant. People with great faith are people who look out before they look in. They are people who put the needs and concerns of others before their own needs and concerns. And they're willing to make personal sacrifices. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we people like that? Are we people like that? Fourth, the centurion showed humility. Humility. He didn't think of himself nearly as highly as others thought of him. 
He didn't use his status or his reputation as any kind of basis for approaching Jesus. Quite the opposite. As a Gentile, he recognized that he didn't have the kind of privileges before God that the Jewish people did, and so he sends these uh, Jewish elders to approach Jesus on his behalf. And he says, verse 7, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. And then later on, he has second thoughts about how worthy he is even to have Jesus come willingly into his house. And so he sends his friends to ask Jesus not to bother himself to come any further. And look, even in the message that he sends through his friends, uh, when he compares Jesus' authority to his his own, he doesn't say, I am a man with authority, with servants under me. He says, I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. He knew his place. This is a picture of a truly humble man, even though, no doubt, he had much to boast about. And great faith and humility always go hand in hand. Jesus works when he sees great faith, but he never sees great faith in those who approach him on the basis of what they have, rather than on the basis of what they don't have. But at the same time, while this uh, centurion was humble, his faith was also expressed with confidence. He was confident that Jesus had the power and the authority to meet his request. Verse 7 again. But say the word, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. It's sometimes thought that humility and confidence don't mix. That a humble person can also be a confident person. But great faith requires both humility and confidence. The real issue is where your confidence is placed. Now, this centurion's confidence wasn't placed in himself, but in Jesus. And that confidence was based on his knowledge of Jesus. Because he knew Jesus, he had confidence in what Jesus could do. So let me ask, do we have confidence in Jesus, in what he can do? If not, well, is that because we need to know him better? I believe that if we feast on all that the Bible has to teach us about Jesus, our confidence in him will grow and our faith will flourish. Finally, the centurion's faith was shown in his ambitious request. He didn't ask Jesus just to come and say something comforting to his servant in his dying hours. No, he asked Jesus to heal him. And people of great faith don't ask small things of God. They know what God is like, they know what God can do, and their prayers reflect that. John Newton, who wrote the famous hymn Amazing Grace, also wrote these words, in another hymn. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his love and power are such, none can ever ask too much. So then, we can see in this centurion, I think, what Jesus saw. The marks of great faith. And I think it's safe to say that these marks are always found in people of great faith whether it's people in the Bible or people in the history of the church. 
One such person was George Muller. If you've never heard of Muller, I recommend, I, I, I really do strongly recommend that you read the biography that's published by Christian Focus. Uh, I assure you that you will find it immensely encouraging and challenging. But Muller, just to fill you in, was born in Germany in 1805 and became a Christian at the age of 20. He moved to London to train to be uh, a missionary to the Jews, but he had to abandon his plans due to illness. And after serving as a pastor for several years, he felt that God was calling him to start a children's home to care for the many orphans that were living on the streets of Bristol at that time. Over the course of the next 60 years, he received one and a half million pounds to support his work with orphans. I did a bit of a calculation and discovered that that amount, one and a half million pounds in his day, would probably be worth around 125 million pounds in our day. And he built five children's homes which cared for over 10,000 children in the course of his life. And he was able to send tens of thousands of uh, pounds overseas to support mission work. But the most incredible thing is that Muller never once asked anyone for a penny as a matter of principle. Not once. He just would not do it. He simply prayed for the finances to come in because he was convinced that his God would never fail to provide for all their needs. And there were many occasions when the children's homes were down to their last loaf of bread, they didn't have any money to buy more, Muller would calmly go to his room, close the door, get down on his knees, and pray for God to provide. And in every case, his prayers were answered, often in very astonishing ways. Like the centurion, Muller was a man of great faith, and so he had the marks of great faith. He had a healthy fear of God, always living in light of the fact that he was accountable to the judge of the universe. He had a deep knowledge of Jesus, often spending hours each day studying his Bible. He was selfless to a fault, always putting the needs of others before his own. He was always humble in his demeanor, but always confident in his God. And he was a man who made many ambitious requests of God, requests that were granted over and over again. Muller was a man of great faith, and he took every opportunity to tell others how Jesus had done a great work in him and through him. But perhaps you're tempted to say to yourself, just as I've been tempted to say, I could never have great faith like that. I could never be like George Muller or like other men and women of great faith in history. But I have to say in response, how do you know? How do you know? What strikes me about this centurion is that he would never have seen himself as a man of great faith. And I think there are three things that we need to recognize here. The first is that people of great faith never think of themselves as people of great faith. The second, I think, is that great faith is not something that you ever aim for directly. You don't say to yourself, okay, today I'm going to try to have great faith. I really feel today is the day I'm going to have Great faith. I'm going to go for it. No. Great faith is something that you aim for indirectly by pursuing the marks of great faith. Fear of God. Knowledge of Jesus. Selfless concern. Humility. Confidence in Jesus. And ambitious requests. 
And the third thing to grasp is that ultimately, great faith is a gift. It's a gift from God. That's why Paul lists faith as one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. Look at it for yourself. And so ultimately, it is God who determines whether you will have great faith. But think about that. If that's the case, if great faith is a gift from God, then there's absolutely no reason to think that you couldn't be a man or a woman of great faith. And in the meantime, all of us should aim for these marks of great faith and let God work faith in us as he wills. Before we move on to the second of these two miracle accounts, let's not overlook what is the really important part of this first miracle account. Namely, the miracle. How is the centurion's great faith rewarded? Jesus works. Jesus works with great power and authority. Verse 10. The men who had been sent returned to their house and found the servant well. The centurion's faith was not misplaced after all. His great faith was directed toward a great saviour. And he was not disappointed. Let's turn now to the second of these two miracles then. We've learned from the first that Jesus works when he sees great faith. But what do we learn from the second? I think it's this. Jesus works when he sees great need. Jesus works when he sees great need. Let's look closely at the story and consider just how great a need this was. After healing the centurion's servant, Jesus goes with his disciples to a small town called Nain, probably about 20 miles from Capernaum. He's followed by a large crowd of people, probably hungry to see more miracles. And as Jesus approaches the town gate, he sees this funeral procession coming in the opposite direction. I said earlier that great faith involves knowledge of Jesus. Well, here's an opportunity for us, because we can learn a lot about Jesus from the situation that he encounters here and how he responds to it. First, it was a devastating situation for the widow. A devastating situation. She'd suffered great loss. Her husband had already died, we know, and now her only son as well. She'd lost all her immediate family, and that meant that she was probably left without an income to survive on. There were very few opportunities for women to earn their own living in first century Palestine. And without male family members and a means of income, she lost all her security. She was now alone and vulnerable in the world. It was a devastating situation for this woman, and perhaps some of you can relate to the kind of losses that she faced. Secondly, it was a distressing situation. Well, obviously it was distressing for the widow, that, that goes without saying. And it appears that many in her town shared in her sorrow because Luke tells us that a large crowd from the town was with her. Her plight had touched many people from her community. But it was also distressing for Jesus. Jesus had never met this widow before, but Luke writes that when he saw her, his heart went out to her. 
The Greek word that's translated here, it's just one Greek word that's translated by the phrase, his heart went out to her, is one that expresses deep emotion. It means to be deeply moved with compassion. This was Jesus' first reaction to the widow's need. He was filled with deep compassion and immediately spoke words of comfort to her. Don't cry. If you are experiencing deep need, great need at this time, one of the first things that you need to know is that Jesus sees your distress and his heart goes out to you. And not only does he have all the compassion of God, but as a human, he has experienced grief and suffering and loss just as you have. Third, it was a desperate situation. A desperate situation. From a human perspective, there was very little hope. With the centurion's servant, there was still hope while he lived. The the servant was near to death, but he wasn't dead. The widow's son was dead. Things had gone too far this time. It was too late. And we should bear in mind that at this time in his ministry, Jesus hadn't yet raised anyone from the dead. And the people of Nain may have heard about Jesus' healing ministry, but bringing back to life a corpse would require more than a healing ministry. And so it appeared to be a desperate situation. Too late for hope. I don't know your circumstances here this evening, but perhaps some of you are facing what you feel is a desperate situation at the moment. You feel that things have gone too far. It's too late for hope. And you wonder, where was Jesus? Why didn't Jesus work in this situation? It seems to me that sometimes God chooses to let things go beyond the point of human hope so that it becomes impossible for us to place our faith anywhere or place our hope anywhere else but in him. And only then does he have the opportunity to work in ways that we never expected. The End of the Spear is a book by Steve Saint that tells the story of his father and four other men who committed themselves to take the message of Jesus to the remote tribes who lived in the jungles of Ecuador. Against the advice of the mission organization that they were working with, they decided to reach the Waudani tribe, a group so violent and so bloodthirsty that all the other tribes in the area were utterly terrified of them. In fact, at the time, uh, the Waudani themselves were facing extinction because they were killing one another with such great regularity. Well, the five uh, missionaries spent months gradually building up the trust of the tribesmen by dropping food parcels and other gifts from their plane. Finally, they were able to make face-to-face contact with three of the tribesmen. A real breakthrough. But on their second attempt to make contact, tragedy struck. The men were completely unaware that due to conflicts within the tribe, some of the tribe members had decided to kill them. And as they got out of their plane, a group of Waldani suddenly attacked them, slaughtering all five of the men with spears and machetes. From a human perspective, it looked as though all was lost. These five gifted, godly men had been brutally murdered, their bodies dumped in a remote jungle river. 
their wives and their children were devastated. And the savage tribe was still just as caught up in hatred and violence as ever. It seemed too late for hope. But in the midst of this desperate situation, Jesus did an incredible work. Two women, the sister of one of the murdered men and the wife of another, continued to try to reach the Waudani. So captivated by the love of Jesus in their own lives, these women visited the tribe and then started to live with them. They learned to speak their language and they told them the good news about Jesus. And the tribesmen were so astonished at the way that these women loved them, rather than seeking revenge, as they would have done, that their lives were transformed. They put an end to the cycle of violence that had enslaved them for generations, and many of them came to faith in Jesus. In their own words, they decided to walk his trail, to follow Jesus, to walk his trail. And to this day, the Waldani are a peaceful tribe with a strong Christian witness in their midst. It is a truly remarkable story about how Jesus can turn around desperate situations that seem beyond the point of hope. And in his book, Steve Saint tells of how the very men who speared his father to death are now like family to him because of how Jesus worked in in their lives and in his. This is what he concludes. I have personally paid a high price for what happened on Palm Beach. But I have also had a front row seat as the rest of the story has been unfolding for half a century. I have seen firsthand that much good has come from it. I believe only God could have fashioned such an incredible story from such a tragic event. Finally, this situation that Jesus faced was defiling. It was defiling. According to Jewish law in the Old Testament, anyone who came into contact with a dead body or even with a person's grave became ritually unclean. And this was a serious matter. It required a quite strict process of purification afterwards. And as was the custom of the day, the coffin here would have been an open one. In fact, we know anyway it was an open coffin because when Jesus restored the man to life, he sat up. Difficult thing to do in a closed coffin. But by touching the coffin, Jesus made himself unclean. He made himself unclean. But he was willing to do that in order to meet this widow's great need. Perhaps some of us here have a great need, and we're desperate for God to work in our lives. But the nature of the need is such that we are ashamed of ourselves, so ashamed of it that we feel we cannot bring it to God in prayer. We think that God wouldn't dirty his hands with this kind of sordid or shameful situation. So we keep it to ourselves. If you feel that way, take encouragement from this story. Jesus is willing to get his hands dirty. If the Son of God was willing to degrade himself by coming down to our level to live in the midst of all the filth and sin and pain of human life, he is more than willing to work in your life to meet your need, however shameful you think it is. So don't wait. Don't wait. Take it to Jesus. And a lesson for all of us who claim to follow Jesus is that we have to be just as willing to get our hands dirty 
if that's what it takes to help others in their need. Well, we can see then what a great need this widow had. But against the backdrop of this devastating, distressing, desperate and defiant situation, we also see the wonderful response of Jesus to this great need. Once again, Jesus works. Jesus works with great compassion and also with great authority. Verse 14. Then he went up and touched the coffin and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The the dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus' compassion is not powerless emotion. Jesus not only has the authority to heal the sick, but also the authority to raise the dead. Jesus has the authority to bring hope to the hopeless, to bring life from death. And he proved it not only by raising others to life, but by overcoming death himself with the power of God. If you have a great need, I hope you will be encouraged by this. Jesus works when he sees great need. But we need to be very careful about how we apply this. Just because we have a great need, it doesn't follow that Jesus will work in the way that we want or in the way that we expect. We've seen that already in these two stories. But above all, we need to ask whether what we think is our greatest need is what Jesus thinks is our greatest need. And so I want to finish by asking that very question. What is our greatest need? And how does Jesus work to meet that need? According to the teaching of Jesus... In the Gospels, you find it throughout the Gospels, our greatest need is this. We need to be raised to life. We need to be raised to life. In the first place, we need to be raised to life physically. Because all of us will experience death one day and we will be separated from everything that we care about. Whatever other needs we have, they will become irrelevant on the day we die. And the tragic events of this past week have painfully reminded us of that. Isn't that what the people who died in Virginia and the people who died in Iraq need? They need to be raised to life. But even more importantly, even more importantly, we need to be raised to life spiritually. One of the greatest tragedies of this world, and perhaps the greatest tragedy, is that every one of us was born into this world spiritually dead. We're spiritually dead because our ingrained sinfulness and selfishness separates us from God who is the source of all spiritual life. And the evidence of that spiritual deadness in our lives is displayed in our attitudes and our behaviour towards God and towards one another. And it's not pretty. If you aren't right with God this evening, I have to tell you you are spiritually dead. You are spiritually dead. I'm sure that some of you will find that offensive. But that is how Jesus spoke of people's greatest need. And some of them found it so offensive that he had him killed for it. But it is not too late for anyone. And there is hope for everyone who needs to be spiritually brought to life. 
Listen to these words of Jesus. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus was saying that at the very time that he spoke these words, people were hearing his message and coming to life. Not physically, because they weren't physically dead. He wasn't preaching to physically dead people. But spiritually, people were spiritually coming to life. How then did Jesus raise them to spiritual life? How did he work that miracle? Well, he did it when he died on the cross. A sinless man, bearing the judgment and the punishment for their sins against God, wiping the slate clean so that they would no longer be separated from God by their sins. And he did it when he rose from the dead, three days later, showing that his cleansing work was complete and that he had power to defeat both sin and death. And that same work of Jesus is available to all of us. How do we receive it? Simply by faith. Simply by faith. By putting our faith in Jesus, just as that centurion did. Listen to these words of Jesus again. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, in other words, whoever believes that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and that he was sent into our world to meet our greatest need as simple people before a holy God, whoever believes has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. The greatest faith that anyone can have is faith in Jesus. Because through that faith, Jesus works to meet our greatest need. If you've already put your faith in Jesus... Praise God that you have been raised to life in a way that goes far beyond what that widow's son experienced. And like those people of Nain, spread the news about Jesus so that others can hear and be raised as well. If you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, I simply invite you to look again at that miracle-working man. Look at his compassion. Look at his authority. Look at his power to meet your greatest need and ask whether he isn't worthy of your trust after all. Let's pray.